Hi, listeners, and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Alina Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez. This is a podcast where I will be bringing you stories of murders, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. This week, I'm going to tell you about a crime that detectives testified was the worst they had ever worked, and it ended up going unsolved. Then, advances in DNA testing locked on a suspect, Scott Erskine, who was already serving a 70-year sentence for the brutal rape of a woman that took place later in 1993. This is the story of the tragic murders of Charlie Kiever and Jonathan Sellers. In the morning of Saturday, March 27, 1993, 13-year-old Charlie Kiever and 9-year-old Jonathan Sellers went out on a bike ride looking for adventure, but they never returned back home. That day, witnesses described seeing the two boys at an arcade, a pet adoption center, and at a rallies where the two bought hamburgers for lunch. Two other witnesses spoke to the boys while biking in the Otai Riverbed near a washed out bridge. And one of those witnesses actually saw the murderer, although they didn't know it was the murderer at the time. So the witness described that they had seen a man driving a car across the field and blocking the bike path, which seemed very unusual for the witness. When Charlie and Jonathan failed to return back home that evening, both of the families began searching the neighborhood and Charlie was the youngest of three children and Jonathan was the fourth of six children and he happened to be a twin. So he had a twin sister and he happened to be two minutes younger than the twin sister. Okay, it's a big family. Right. So that day, Jonathan's older half-brother, Alton Williams, was supposed to go bike riding with Charlie and Jonathan. But get this. Last minute change of plans resulted in Alton staying behind and Jonathan joining Charlie alone. So Jennifer, Jonathan's twin sister, also wanted to go along, but Jonathan said he didn't want a girl tagging along. So Milena Sellers, Jonathan's mom, told Jennifer to let the boys enjoy the day and she could go next time. So Jennifer remained at home. Man, that's horrible. I know. I mean, it makes you wonder, like, what if... You know, something maybe didn't wouldn't have happened if maybe the older brother would have gone or even the sister would have gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in hopes to offer help, Alton told his mother about the riverbed trail where Charlie and Jonathan often like to bike in. And immediately Jonathan's mother and her son went to the trail but didn't find any sign of the boys. So something that Alton failed to mention to his mother that day was that the boys liked to go into this igloo-looking style fort that was made out of brush. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So to the boys, this looked like a cool little cave, and they used to like crawling into it. And that night, it happened to be raining. So when Alton and his mother went to the trail, they happened to stop short of that cave. Oh, man. Yeah. The following day... The search party continued to look for the two boys, but the boys were nowhere to be found. And two days later, a man was biking and running on the path through the Otai Riverbed when he stopped to look at something that had caught his attention. That was fantastic, Jose. 
You want to know what I just did? What'd you do? I just tried. I opened up, and you don't get any. I opened up the new wine that I received from Wine of the Month Club. So do you, Jose, want to treat yourself or someone special to great wines month after month? I would love to. Well, now you can with Wine of the Month Club. With Wine of the Month Club, you get three different bottles of rare international wine every month. You get to choose from all red, all white, or mixed. You can also choose to do a package every two months or three months if that's a better option for you. And every package ships with their monthly newsletter covering your selections and our listener favorites. Fun facts! We are a proud affiliate, which means if you go to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com forward slash support the show and click on the wine of the club month link and sign up we will earn a commission you can support the show and get wine delivered to your door by using promo code holiday 15 to get 15 dollars off any four month club or you can use promo code holiday 20 for 20 dollars off any six months club which sounds like a win-win to me you get to stay home during this covid19 pandemic quarantine by yourself and your wines and they ship free what? hey jose so you know that during this pandemic it could even be scary to go to the grocery store sometimes yeah absolutely well you can save yourself that trip using instacart instacart delivers groceries in as fast as one hour instacart highlights deals to help you save money they find everything you usually buy you can get smart suggestions for new items they even pick the freshest produce and they keep your eggs safe too we are a proud affiliate of instacart so head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com forward slash support the show and click their link as the man took a closer look his eyes met horror He saw a boy hanging from his neck on the tree branch, partially naked with his feet and hands bound together. And the boy also was gagged. Oh man, that's horrible. Yeah, can you imagine? Can't imagine running into that. Well, then he saw another boy laying on the ground, also partially naked with his feet and hands also bound together. Mm. And the boys were deceased. When detectives arrived at the scene, they found that underneath Charlie's head was a pile of neatly folded clothing, which included the boys' shirts, jeans, and shoes. They also found that both of the boys had been molested and Charlie's body had been mutilated. Detectives were able to collect evidence at the crime scene, and that evidence included two cigarette buds and the boys' bikes were found chained together and covered with tumbleweeds approximately 30 feet from the bodies. So DNA samples were also collected from both the victims, but by the time that the boys were found, two days had passed, and the rain had washed away any footprints that the killer might have left, and the case just went cold. That's awful. Mm-hmm. It seems like bad timing because, come on, it never rains around here. I know. Here in San Diego, yeah, right? And never it's rains, like so. something as horrible happens and it happens to be raining that day. Yeah. So a reward was posted and billboards with the boys' pictures pleading for information from the public were up. But unfortunately, nothing worked. Hundreds of tips led police officers 
from locals to Key West, Florida, to Oregon, to New York City, and throughout Mexico. Tips led to potential suspects pretty much everywhere. Right. So the Royal Canadian Mountain Police checked tips in Canada, and detectives followed multiple leads that looked promising, but then later it would pan out to be nothing. So in March of 1994, probation officer Ann Royer had just completed a report on Scott Erskine for his sentencing for the rape of the San Diego woman in the summer of 1993, which was about five months after the boys were killed. Mm. So Scott's criminal history included rapes and assaults on girls, women, and boys, which prompted Ann Royer to call the San Diego police detectives and suggest that they take a closer look at Scott Erskine and the boys' killings. So Ann ended up meeting with a detective and went over Scott's case file with him, and the detective took notes. However, nothing came about it. So police met with her, they took their notes, but they never followed through. They never followed up on any of it. Really? Yeah. So the detective never followed up with Anne after she was interviewed and the San Diego Police Department didn't really see Scott Erskine as a serious suspect. So detectives thought that Scott was more of a low priority guy and they felt that they had far more serious people than him. That I don't understand. Well, remember, they had tons of leads. Now, yes, some of them didn't pan out. Yeah, but like all over the place, but but this guy's here in San Diego. Right. And it happened here in San Diego, but they they just didn't see the connection that Anne was seeing at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so who is Scott Erskine? So Scott grew up in Southern California. When he was five years old, he darted into traffic on the Pacific Coast Highway outside San Diego and was hit by a station wagon. So he remained in a coma for 60 hours. And although physically he appeared to recover, he frequently complained to his mother about headaches and he experienced blackout moments where he couldn't remember what he was last doing, Hmm. which is pretty scary, right? So at the age of 10, he started molesting his six-year-old sister. He soon began abusing her friends and threatening to kill them if they told anybody. Man, that young? Oh, yeah. It gets, yeah, it gets bad. So at 15, Scott escaped from a juvenile detention facility, pulled a knife on a 13-year-old girl, and raped her. What? Yes. So horrible. It's awful. So the next morning, he assaulted a 27-year-old female jogger with a knife. And in 1981, his way to interview for a camp counselor position. A camp counselor? Really? I know. You gotta be kidding me. I know. So Scott beat a 14-year-old boy unconscious during an attempted rape. So he also raped another inmate while he was imprisoned. And Scott begged the San Diego judge at the time to spare him from adult prison. Despite his mother's pleas to send her son to a mental institution, Scott was sentenced to four years in prison, which then led him to be paroled in 1984. What is going on? Like, it seems like he has, like, such a constant pattern. Right. Oh, but this is a low-profile guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? Keep in mind, though, all of this is while he was a juvenile. So? It's there. Right. But those files are sealed. Oh. 
So I don't know if detectives as an adult, um, I don't know what the process is as far as like how they can unseal that because it happened when he was a minor. Oh, man. Yeah. So I don't know if they knew that, you know. So upon his release, Scott met a woman who he dated on and off and moved to Orlando, Florida with her in 1988. And they were married that year and they had a son. So the marriage was brief and dysfunctional. Scott physically abused his wife. He even kicked her in the stomach when she was pregnant. Oh, man. Yeah. And she eventually left him. And Scott then moved back to Southern California. Then in 1993, Scott invited a woman who was waiting for the bus into his home and held her hostage for several days, repeatedly raping and sodomizing her before letting her go. And he just let her go. And did he get caught for this? Or? Yeah, he was quickly arrested afterwards. And he was convicted of the rape and kidnapping, declared a sex offender, and he was sentenced to 70 years in prison. Oh, okay. Wow. So, so this is what this got him is in. The, this is how he ended up getting yeah. caught. Okay, this is the reason why I'm telling you kind of like the background. So as a convicted sex offender, Scott had to submit his DNA to a database, which is what ultimately led detectives to him. So, in March of 2001, the San Diego Cold Case Squad reopened the investigation of the unsolved murders of Jonathan and Charlie. And the police tested cotton swabs found in Charlie's mouth that contained semen. And since it was determined neither boy was physically mature enough to produce sperm, the semen could only have originated from the killer. That's horrible. Yeah. So the DNA sample was entered into CODIS and they soon got a hit. The DNA belonged to Scott Erskine. And in September of 2003, Scott Erskine went on trial for the two murders. The jurors were shown photos of the crime scene. Jonathan was at the entrance of the makeshift fort hanging from a castor bean tree branch. He was naked from the waist down, his legs and arms bound with rope, and his mouth was gagged. His genitals showed obvious signs of sexual assault, and a noose was tied around his neck. On the ground laid Charlie, his head resting on a pile of his and Jonathan's clothes. He was also naked from the waist down, legs and arms bound, his mouth also gagged, and his genitals were bleeding from extensive bite marks oh man that's terrible it's horrible this is the worst case i have ever heard of so he too had rope around his neck the pathologist determined charlie was alive when the bite marks were inflicted scott's dna was also found on the two cigarette buds that were found near the boy's bodies and on october 1st 2003 the jury found scott erskine guilty of murder However, they could not agree on the sentence. What is there to not agree upon? Same here. When I read that, I was furious. I mean, when I was doing my research for this case, I read that a lot of people in the courtroom couldn't take seeing that crime scene, the pictures of it, and they had to walk out. I mean, Mm. this was awful what, what he did to these two boys. And to me, it's obvious right away i would have said the death sentence but i mean yeah his dna is there it was obviously him i mean right. what what else is there to 
to dispute here. I, I yeah. really don't understand. Right. Well, 11 jurors voted for the death penalty, while one juror insisted on giving Scott life without the possibility of parole. The judge declared a mistrial on the penalty phase, and in April of 2004, Scott went before a second jury to decide his punishment for the murders. And this jury unanimously recommended the death penalty. And on September 1st, 2004, a California judge upheld the jury's recommendation and gave Scott the death penalty. He was transported to San Quinn six days later, and on July 3rd, 2020, Scott Erskine died of COVID-19 complications. You're kidding. Nope. Wow. Yeah. I mean, at least he's gone and he doesn't deserve to be around, but... Right. Because that's the thing, right? How many inmates do we currently have just waiting, sitting on death row? Yeah. You know, so at least he's gone. But to me, that's, I don't know, in a way, not justice, you know? Yeah. I just don't get, like, even as a juvenile, how after just a constant pattern... I mean, I understand, like, as he's living his life, but you read them off, that that timeline Mm -hmm. of events of what he did, and it's like... What is he still doing around? Like, he clearly and, needed some sort of help. He did. And, and he was not getting it. Right. And we'll get into that. I mean, I agree. I'm telling you, when I was reading this case, I was like, why was he not stopped sooner? Yeah. Um, but like I said, we'll get into that right now. So during the sentencing, both Charlie's mother and Jonathan's mother were able to give a victim impact statement in which Scott refused to look at either of them. So during the trial, Scott's lawyers argue that Scott's brain was damaged when he was struck by that car that I told you about when he was five years old. Right. So they did not contest that he killed the boys, but asked jurors not to recommend execution by arguing the injury caused him to lose the ability to curb sexual sadistic urges, therefore lessening his responsibility. So during the victim impact statements, Charlie's mother said this, and I quote, I was in an accident when I was seven years old. I was run over by a truck, and I don't go killing people. That's not a reason to kill people, end quote. She was in a coma for two days and hospitalized for one year. So that, to me, goes to prove what Scott's lawyer was arguing is just nonsense. I mean, yeah. I mean, you never know, right? Because, yes, the injury could be different. It could be something in the brain, but... But to still, yeah, like, come on. I mean, to me, that's just like, come on. Like, you know, people are raised in horrible situations and they don't grow up to kill anybody. But once, you know, a killer gets caught, it's always, oh, well, because my parents treated me bad. Oh, because of my past. Whereas like, you know what? We all came from somewhere and it wasn't, it might have not been the best, but not all of us grew up to be killers. Yeah. So... This case changed how the San Diego police deal with sexual criminals and particularly pedophiles. In the first days of the investigation, police realized that list of convicted sex offenders that were available to law enforcement agencies were incomplete and split among various city, county, and state agencies. Mm -hmm. So today, as a result of Charlie Kiever and Jonathan Sellers' murders, the San Diego Police Department has a team of officers and volunteers assigned to keep tabs on all sex offenders. I hope that even though he wasn't executed, but he was 
you know, he passed away from COVID-19 complications. I'm hoping that maybe that helped bring some closure to the boy's parents, the boy's mothers. You know, I know that they never gave up. When I was doing my research, I found how um, both Jonathan and Charlie's mother just never gave up hope. They never stopped looking for their boy's um, killer and they just wanted justice to be served. And they actually went and there is a foundation in their name. So it's called the Jonathan Sellers and Charlie Kiever Foundation. And it's a nonprofit corporation established to promote the safety and well-being of children and support families who have lost loved ones at the hands of another, you know, which I think it's amazing the work that they are doing now. And so even though... They went through such a tragic event. They're still, they turned it around and are doing something positive for the community. You know, I think that that's just awesome. I had personally had never heard of this story. It happened here in San Diego and in areas that I'm familiar with, but I had never heard of this tragic event. I had no idea that something this awful had happened to two little kids no i didn't either yeah i, I hadn't heard about it my entire life i've never heard of it yeah before. it wasn't until my dad told me the other day it's like oh yeah do you remember the two boys that were riding their bikes and i just looked at him like what what are you talking about and he's like the case and he was like trying to tell me that you know he had died of covid the killer did and i was like i don't know what you're talking about dad <laughs> and then he uh-huh. ended up sending me an article and i was like oh and then i found it so interesting like i said because it's all you know it all happened here locally and the case was just awful you know it it's horrible and there was a lot of detail that i didn't want to go into because anybody can go up and look it up if that's what they want to do i just didn't want to cover that you know yeah and it was just like i said it's amazing what the two moms are able to do and how they're they're turning it into something positive to help other families that have gone maybe through the same tragic events If you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover, you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at podcasttruecrimeweekly. And don't forget to support the show by going to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com forward slash support the show. Now, we truly love it and appreciate it if you will leave a five-star review and subscribe onto Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thanks for listening.